the doctrine that makes that reality, which we've just sung about, even sweeter, is the doctrine of the Trinity. Yet, there's no doctrine which is more difficult, possibly, to understand than this doctrine in all of Christianity. It's the most foundational, yet it's the most confusing often. Churches struggle to express their belief here. I've sat through, and I'm sure you've sat through, more than one Sunday school class that would have made the church fathers cringe because they fought this battle, thought they won, and now it keeps popping its head up everywhere. As history clearly shows, the early church was all but united in the belief that the Bible teaches the doctrine of the Trinity. One essence, three persons. Though this word, Trinity, is a Latin term applied first and foremost by Tertullian, who lived between 155 and the early 200s A.D. First time that we see it in history in any writings was off the pen, the quill of Tertullian. So it's not in the pages of the Holy Scripture. And you'll hear that argument about those who don't accept the doctrine of the Trinity. And they'll say, well, it's not in the Bible. And I would agree the Word is not in the Bible. But if you read the Bible, the doctrine is everywhere. If you miss it, you miss the Bible. I don't know what you were reading if you missed it. It's very clear from the plurality of the words used for God in the Old Testament as early as Genesis and the account of the creation all the way through Revelation where Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are, are, are announced over and over again. It's clear, it seems. And, and the church is important with today's climate about this doctrine that you understand it was almost completely united on this sub- subject. As divided as it was over many other things, this doctrine was almost Unanimous. Let me try to give you just a brief, detailed, and I think it's important that you know, because you'll hear guys like Dan Brown throwing around shoddy history in his Da Vinci Code, and you'll hear many people championing the cause and saying that he's got it right and the rest of the church has missed it for the last, oh, 1,600 years or better. It's important we know the history here of what we believe. Constantine I, the emperor who ended the persecution against the Christians in the Roman Empire, at least for a short time during his life, he called together a council in, in the history of Acts 15. And it, by the way, is the first council of the whole church. There have been synods of different churches where the bishops in that area came together to discuss an important matter. But never had the whole church been brought together or called to a meeting. 1,800 bishops... In the Roman church at that time. Think about that. 800 in the West, 1,000 in the Greek or the Eastern church, which was the most powerful church at that day. The Eastern church was. The Eastern church uh, sent many representatives. So did the West. 318 bishops arrived. That's pretty good attendance when you think about the mode of travel and all the difficulties that they had to go through just to get there. Many of them traveled through warring factions. In other words, parts of the empire that were at conflict with one another. And yet, the emperor had given papers for safe travel, and so they traveled through these war-torn regions and these outlands of the emperor's reign. And they came to what now is modern-day Turkey. And they met there in 325 A.D., the first council of Nicaea, Nicaea of Bithynia, which is now in modern-day Turkey. Alexander of, Alexander of Alexandria. You can't forget that name, can you? He was a bishop there in Alexandria. 
He was the foremost father in the Eastern Church. He arrived. And his opponent, Pastor Arian, also from Alexandria. Now, in case you don't know the hierarchy there, which I don't think is biblical, yet in their day it was common. The bishop outranks the pastor. All right? In in their teaching, the bishops outrank the pastor here. So Alexander was like a pastor for the pastors. And one of his rogue students now has risen to teach this new doctrine known as Arianism. And it had raised the Arian conflict, which now was threatening to divide the church and destroy the belief that had been passed down from the apostles. So it was an important matter. That was the main topic of the discussion at Nicaea. Though they discussed also a couple of other things not the least of which, when should we celebrate the resurrection? They settled that question there too, almost unanimously. So there were several topics, but the greatest topic of most importance to the church was this topic of Arianism. And what did Arian believe? Well, he taught uh, that, to to try to summarize a, a big teaching, he taught that the Father, God the Father, gave birth to God the Son. In other words, the Son had not been co-eternal and had not been co-equal with the Father. He was new. He was, he was brought into existence by the Father. The Son is neither of the same rank or power as the Father. That was his teaching. Alexander, on the side of orthodoxy and the teaching of the apostles, had taught very clearly that God, the Godhead is co-eternal. The Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are co-eternal. They had always existed. And they were co-equal. One didn't have more power than the other. They shared the power equally. And so you can see the slippery slope. We're going to have a huge discussion over one word. If anybody ever tells you words don't matter, they're just fooling themselves and you. Words matter. Words matter. You know that. I know that. And the fathers knew that when they joined here at Nicaea. One word. There were 318 bishops, as I said. And there's a, there's a dispute about that because each of the bishops was allowed to bring two priests and three deacons. There were over 1,500 churchmen in this council. So getting a number of bishops by their dress, in other words, the robes they wore, is kind of difficult. But the most unanimous number is 318. In tow with Alexander, the bishop from Alexandria, is a young man at the time by the name of Athanasius, a deacon in the church, a servant to the church. And he was a foremost theologian, though very few people knew who he was. It was it was. Athanasius, which we believe, implored, pushed for the use of the word in the Greek, which means in Latin, consubstantial. That the union between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is consubstantial. Of the same substance, of the same essence, of the same likeness. This word is the one that everybody was fighting over. We had factions named after Greek terms in this council. But in the end, 
315 of the 300, oh, excuse me, 316 of the 318 bishops supported the truth of the Trinity. Now, the reason I mention Dan Brown is this. He plays roughshod with this truth. In his book, The Da Vinci Code, it's straight out heresy. And he can call it a fiction if he so chooses, but it is wrong doctrine. And many of our churches are reading it and believing it. He wants you to believe it was much more thinly divided, very close. He even uses the phrase, the, those who won almost lost. Now, I don't know where you come from, but where I come from, this is a thrashing. All but two of 318 men agree on a subject, and you dare to say that it was close. It wasn't close. And true, there were some men who came with questions and men who came with concerns. And early on, a straw poll was taken, and it looked as if early on there might be maybe a dozen who would follow Arius in his heresy. But never was it close. The church fathers agreed with the apostles who had passed this truth down through the written word of God. As most heresies have continued, so this Arian heresy has continued and has taken many forms through the years. Modern groups such as the Jehovah's Witness, the Mormons, the Unitarians, the Oneness Pentecostals, all hold to a form, a form of, of, a, of a heresy that is much like the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witness, almost identical to that which was taught by Arius. Almost identical. So when someone tries to say that the Mormons are just a branch of the church, they are not. They're a cult. And they're based on a heresy. So are the Jehovah's Witnesses. We must be careful as we talk about this subject, though. I mean, it's difficult. And uh, the, the, I want to, because I'm so hopeful to express it rightly and not get confused in my own words, I want to just, and I've asked Jason to put together some slides here for the Athanasian Creed, which was written in his name, though he didn't write it. And, uh, and then the Nicene Creed. And I want you to read with me the teaching of the Orthodox Church about the Trinity, okay? Just follow along with me. It says, first of all, whoever desires to be saved should above all hold to the Catholic Church. Little c, universal is what that means. Universal Church, the body of Christ. Anyone who does not keep it whole and unbroken will doubtless perish eternally. Now, this is the Catholic faith, the universal faith, the body of Christ, that, the, that we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. For the person of the Father is a distinct person. The person of the Son is another and not that of the Holy Spirit still another. But the divinity of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit is one their glory equal, their majesty co-eternal. We're being asked to accept truths here, parallel to one another. One doesn't subsume the other. Equally true, yet we don't need to blend them. We don't need to bring them together. What quality the Father has, the Son has, and the Holy Spirit has. The Father is uncreated. The Son is uncreated. The Holy Spirit is uncreated. 
The Father is immeasurable. The Son is immeasurable. The Holy Spirit is immeasurable. You see how much strain they took to make this clear. The Father is eternal. The Son is eternal. The Holy Spirit is eternal. And yet there are not three eternal beings. There is but one eternal being. So too, there are not three uncreated or immeasurable beings. There is but one uncreated and immeasurable being. Similarly, the Father is almighty. The Son is almighty. The Holy Spirit is almighty. Yet there are not three almighty beings. There is but one almighty being. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. Yet there are not three gods. There is but one God. Thus the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, the Holy Spirit is Lord, yet there are not three lords, there is but one Lord. Just as Christian truth compels us to confess each person individually as both God and Lord, so universal religion forbids us to say that there are three gods or lords. The Father was neither made nor created nor begotten from anyone. The Son, now notice this, the Son was neither made nor created. You notice that? What word did he leave out? Or did they leave out? Begotten. The Father was not made or created or begotten. The Son was not made or created. But he was begotten. The Holy Spirit was neither made nor created nor begotten. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. Nothing in this trinity is before or after. Nothing is greater or smaller. In their entirety, the three persons are co-eternal and co-equal with each other. So in everything, as we said earlier, we must worship their trinity in their unity and their unity in their trinity. Anyone then who desires to be saved should think thus about the Trinity. But it is not necessary, but it is necessary for eternal salvation that one also believe in the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ faithfully. So they want to distinguish something here. The incarnation, which is also in our passage today. That we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son, is both God and human equally. He is God from the essence of the Father, begotten before time. And He is human from the essence of His Mother, born in time. Completely God. Completely human. With a rational soul and human flesh. Equal to the Father as regards divinity. Less than the Father as regards humanity. Although He is God and human, yet Christ is not two, but one. He is one. However, not by his divinity being turned into flesh, but by God's taking humanity to himself. This is in keeping with Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. He is one, certainly not by the blending of his essence, but by the unity of his person. For just as one human is both rational soul and flesh, so too the one Christ is both God and human. He suffered, And this becomes the Apostles' Creed, almost identical. He suffered for our salvation. He descended to hell. He rose from the dead. He ascended to heaven. He is seated at the right Father's right hand. From there He will come to judge the living and the dead. At His coming, all people will arise bodily and give an account for their own deeds. Those who have done good will enter eternal life, and those who have done evil will enter eternal fire. This is the universal faith 
one cannot be saved without believing it firmly and faithfully. You got it, right? You understand all that. That's easy. It's plain English or Latin or Greek, whichever way you want to read it. The Nicene Creed is much shorter, composed mostly by Athanasius, presented on behalf of the Orthodox position. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God. These are the words which they stumbled over. These are the words which they argued and wrangled for weeks. Begotten, not made. Being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. Who, for us men and for our salvation, came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary. And was made man and was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again, according to the Scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sits on the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And he continues. He believes in the Holy Ghost. He believes in the universal and apostolic church. And so we have the formula of the Trinity, as laid out by the fathers themselves, and keeping with the teaching of the apostles. But any right-thinking Christian should admit at this point that the doctrine is difficult to grasp. Many have fallen off the horse of orthodoxy. Many have fallen off the horse of orthodoxy. Some falling off on the side of Arian so that you have two very distinct beings, God the Father and God the Son, or by following the oneness doctrine which I spoke about quickly, which presents, which is presented, by the way, by popular teachers in our day. T.D. Jakes, Phillips, Craig, and Dean, the musicians, believe this. That God, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit are all one in such a way that when you have the Son, it's simply the Father. There is no distinction at all. And when He says He will send the Spirit, it's just the Son and the Father. All one being, all one substance, all one person coming. You hear heretical statements like when Jesus was praying, He was just talking to Himself. They make a charade out of the passages of the Gospels which show Jesus as God in the flesh talking to God the Father. Not one person, but one substance. One essence. I don't mean to use these names to just single them out, but to show you how prevalent the confusion on this doctrine is almost 1,700 years after the Council of Nicaea. People are still very consumed and confused. When I was in seminary, we came to the doctrine of the Trinity, and our professor, Dr. Keithley, asked the question to start the class this way. Who in here completely understands the teaching of the doctrine of the Trinity? I was young. But I knew better. Some of my compadres did not know better. And they raised their hand, wanting to be the teacher's pet, you know. I got it. I got this one. I'm going to get extra points. So he let them begin to explain. And um, just so you're not feeling bad because you don't fully get it, each of them committed heresy before they were done. And they're pastors. And they're teaching in the pulpit. 
And I don't say that to besmirk them. If I would have tried to explain, I might have done the same. I'm not trying to look down on them. I'm saying this is a very difficult doctrine, though it is yet to be accepted and professed. And I agree with the statements. If you don't accept this doctrine, you cannot be a Christian. You cannot be a Christian and believe there is no Son of God. It does away with the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. You must accept it. And yet it's almost impossible to put into words. He stopped each of them finally and said, Anyone who explains the Trinity so that it can be fully comprehended has expounded a heresy, not the Orthodox doctrine. And with these warnings in mind, let's delve into explaining the Trinity. This is dangerous ground, yet it is holy ground, and it is so important that we try. We'll be forced to accept the facts as clear statements in tension at times, but we will be forced to submit our finite knowledge to the infinite knowledge of God, which I would say is salvation, submission to God. But our souls are safe when we confess the right doctrine of God in three persons, blessed Trinity. Let's look there. John 14, quickly, at this doctrine. Two points. The unity of the Godhead, the unity of the church with Christ. The two are dependent on one another, or the second is dependent on the first, I should say. As you're turning there and preparing, (laughs) you may have used these, so just be careful. I'm not talking, again, to point you out, make you feel bad. I've used them in the past. You know, we've all heard the simple physical analogies. Well, the Trinity, we tell our children, is like an egg. There's a shell and there's a yolk and there's all the gooey stuff between the two, the white. It's like that. We've all heard the analogy. It's like H2O. It can be gas. It can be water. It can be solid ice. Right? We've all heard the analogy. It's like you. You're a father. You're a son. And you're an uncle. We must be careful. It's interesting to me. That the Bible does not use physical analogies to explain the reality that God is three in one. We should therefore be careful using physical analogies to explain this deep doctrine. Lest we oversimplify and confuse further and even cause our children, our young people and ourselves to profess something that is a heresy. That is not truth. That is not in keeping with orthodoxy. Be very careful. I know it's tough because I've laid in the bed with my three-year-olds as they have asked me repetitively, is there three gods? No. There's one God. What's His name? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So there's three gods. No, there's one. You've been there. Some of you are chuckling because you've had to answer. How is Jesus God? How is God God? How is God the Spirit God? How are they not all the same? And that's usually where we get frustrated and give one of these physical analogies to try to help the little Johnny understand. But remember, when we do that, we will oversimplify. It's, in, it's, it's invariably true we will do it. And we will stray from the teaching of the Bible and orthodoxy and what the church has taught for over a thousand years and we'll put them in jeopardy. Now, I've done it, so I'm not fussing at you. 
I'm just saying, we need to commit ourselves to saying what the Bible says. And they're going to struggle with it. And sometimes the best answer is to say, let's keep talking. Let's just trust God on this issue. I can't fully understand it nor explain it, son. It's bigger than I am. God's bigger than us. He's greater than we are. Let's just worship Him. Not in contradiction to the facts, but accepting the facts as parallel and intention often and unexplainable in many ways. It's not against reason that we believe in a trinity. It's in accord with reason because we believe the Word of God to be always true when it speaks. It's never false in any place. So if it teaches us there's three in one, we must accept it. That's not against reason. That's reasonable. So we're on holy ground, literally. Jesus speaking to Philip in answer to the question teaches us the unity of the Godhead. Jesus clearly teaches the unity between himself and his Father. That's the first thing I want you to see. Just for reference sake, John 1.18. In this book that we're studying, John says, No one has ever seen God. The only God, speaking about the Word, which was became flesh, which is Jesus, the, the only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. These teachings come from the Bible, though they are not subsumed under one title, the Trinity, in the Bible. It's okay to say one title, Trinity, to bring all of it together in a way of systematizing it. John 1.18 seems very clear. That God the Father and God the Son are one, yet they are not the exact same person. They are unity inside of a trinity. He says it. Look at Hebrews, or listen to Hebrews 1, 3, the first part. He, speaking of Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. Jesus is God in the flesh, in other words. He is the visible of the invisible. One with God, yet distinct in His person. Philippians 2, 6 through 8a says, Who, though He was in the form of God, that word form meaning God, He was God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made Himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Notice, He was not a only a man in the flesh that was really godly. He was God in the flesh. And he was not God painting a mirage as if he was in the body. He was in the body. God entered into a physical being, a human flesh being. His name is Jesus. He is the eternal Son of God. Not made, not created. He came from God the Father. And He is God. Colossians 1.15 simply says He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn, the preeminent one over all creation. We misunderstand when we translate the word firstborn as, as if He was born new. No. The Greek tells us clearly that title was used For who in the Old Testament, as we trace the etymology of that word back, it was used of Isaac. Isaac was not the firstborn by physical birth. Who was? Ishmael was, but the Bible, God himself calls Isaac firstborn. What does that mean? First in importance, preeminent, 
over all the house of Abraham, Isaac, was born. And so Jesus is preeminent over, superior to everything else. He is God, God in the flesh. So we could, would accept that to see Jesus is to see the Father because that is what the Bible has taught us. If we look at verse 8, his answer to Philip, who has just asked, show me the Father or show us the Father. It's enough if we can see the Father. Jesus says, Philip, have you all been with me for so long and yet you still don't know me? This is the Son speaking on behalf of the Father and the Son. You just asked to see the Father. You've lived with me in the flesh for three and a half years, Philip. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Because I am His image. I am God in the flesh. This is what He's saying here. And if we accept the orthodox teaching of the Scripture, we will accept this and believe it. And even be willing to die for it. Jesus says in verse 9, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Philip, do you not understand that when in Deuteronomy 6 verse 4, God Himself said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one God. I am that God in the flesh. When you've seen me, you've seen Him. You will never see Him, the Father. You will see me. That's what He's saying. And if you will not have enough and you will not believe in Him and me through this witness, you will never believe. Jesus also speaks the words and does the works of the Father. That's clear here. The second sub-point we see here is that Jesus speaks the words and does the works of the Father. Verses 10 through 11. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Very important construction of His words. In the Father, in me. In other words, I'm not the Father in person. He is not me in person. He is in me in person and I'm in Him in person. We're united in our substance. But we are very distinct in our persons. So that it is right to say God the Father and God the Son. God the Father being the first person of the Trinity in heaven at this point when Jesus is teaching. And He, the Son, being on the earth in the flesh, yet one and united. Every power, every authority, every knowledge, every thing, every essence of who God is was in His flesh. He didn't give any of it up. And he says, if I've spoken, I've only spoken the words of God my Father. And whatever work I've done is his work. And word and work, by the way, are one thing. They're not two. They're one. It's a just a different way of saying the same thing. Because whenever Jesus spoke, he acted in accordance to the speaking. He never preached a message which he did not live. So he said, you can accept my words. That is my work. He didn't, in other words, Jesus never said, do as I say, not as I do. Jesus did and said the same. And it was all from the Father. He was in unity with the Father.
So we see that the Father and the Son are one in such a way that whatever Jesus did in the flesh, He did according to the Father and by the Father. The words and works of God are one. For God to speak is for God to work. Isn't that clear from Genesis forward? When God said, let there be, there was. His work and His actions are united to His verbal words. And the person of who He is is united to the physical word He wrote for us. His word. The Bible. Jesus calls us to believe in Him based on the content of His life in verse 11. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. It's not blind faith that we are commanded to have in Christ or in this Trinity. It's not blind faith. We are told to believe in the facts that have been committed to history. Believe in me. And if you won't just believe in me for who I am, believe in what you've seen of me. We're not jumping off a cliff. We're not in blind faith. We're not in ignorance when we profess the truth that Jesus is God in the flesh. And God took on flesh in His Son, Jesus Christ. We are standing with the facts of history. It's not blind faith. It's not ignorance. Jesus says that the truth of His unity with the Father is self-attesting. I don't have to prove it. You know it's true. You've been with me, is what he's saying to the disciples here. I don't have to teach it again. I've taught it before. I've lived it. Now believe it. Believe it. Accept the works the Father has done through Jesus as proof of the truth that there is unity within the Godhead. The Son is not swallowed up in the Father. The Father not swallowed up in the Son. But both of them united together in such a way as to present His glory and His holiness. The unity of Christ and the church is the second thing I see in this passage in verses 12 through 14. The church will accomplish more work because Jesus is with the Father. This statement is troubling to some. They try to explain it away as if this doesn't say what it means. It does say it. It does mean it. It's not saying here that there will be a greater quality to the work of the church. The apostles at this point, but extended into the church. We've always seen that. It's not that they will do greater works in the sense of quality. There's yet to be a miracle that even stood anywhere close to what he did at the tomb with Lazarus. Four days dead, calling him. from the, Nobody's ever done anything like it. Nobody. That's not what he means, though. What does he mean? He means in quantity. The book of Acts is proof that this statement is true. He says in verse 12, Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do. Because I'm with the Father. This is what he's saying. He's going to explain it deeper in the passage, and we're going to get there. I'm going to the Father, but I will not leave you alone. I will come to you in the Spirit. And didn't it happen in Acts? Didn't it happen in the upper room? As the believers, not just the apostle, the reason I say it's the church, not just the apostles, is all the believers were there in one. And all of them together were about 120. 
His whole three and a half year ministry came down to 120 followers. And the Spirit fell. Attested to them by fiery tongues. They went to Pentecost. Peter preached one sermon. And how many people were added that day? 3,000 were added in one day. Greater works you will do because I go to my Father. The Holy Spirit is coming, Jesus is saying. And He will not only reside as He has in me for all of these years, but He will reside in power on the church. And the church is not limited in geography to little Palestine, Galilee, and Judea. It is throughout the uttermost parts of the earth. The amazing truth of Acts is that the words Jesus spoke in John 14, verse 12, are instantly made true as the disciples preach and teach in the name of Jesus Christ and the Spirit goes out in their teaching and saves lost men and women and children. And the spread of the gospel within a generation is throughout the known world, the Roman Empire. It's throughout the whole empire. Jesus had worked in one location for three and a half years, basically. Palestine. He had 120 followers when he died. But he said, don't be discouraged. The number is so small. I tell you, I'll go to my Father and I'll send to you the Spirit. And then you will do greater works than even I've done. And isn't it true? Isn't it true? Now, on every continent... There are believers. And the nations are being saved and gathered into His throne room because He keeps His Word. And Acts is just the beginning of that. It's not the ending. It's the acts of the Holy Spirit through the apostles. And I say in 28, it assumes a 29. And 29 is everything that's happened since then. Everything that has happened since then is the history of God working His work through the church. The Spirit, which is one with the Father and the Son, will make these works possible. You won't do greater things by yourself. The Spirit of God will do the work in and through you. The church will accomplish the work of the Father through Jesus Christ by prayer in His name. I end here because it is a deep burden on my heart for us as a fellowship. You do realize we can preach right doctrine, we can sing right songs, we can confess true truths and we can stand in the stream of reformed history and be proud of that and so we should be and yet without prayer we can do nothing we can do nothing that will last through eternity God will never use grace fellowship as long as she is not a prayerful church. I say that on not just this verse, but on so many verses like it. Look what he says. We see that the Spirit in the believer is in the believer in such a way that if the believer does a good work, it is actually done by the Spirit. Anything you do that is good, is not you. It is the Spirit in you. I take as my proof text, if you need it, Ephesians 2.10. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
That's why I say, Grace Fellowship, hear me clearly. Until we are broken and on our face before God, it is all a show. Until we will cry to the Father, who through the Son has sent His Spirit as a gift on the church, it is a show. And there may be some things done in spite of us, but nothing will be done through us. You say, that's a harsh statement. We're doing the best we can do. Really? Really? There's anyone in here who would stand and say that you count yourself among those who are submitted fully in prayer to the Father. Myself included. I don't throw barbs at you. They've sunk into my heart. Prayer is not a duty in as much as it is a delight. Why? Because of the truth contained in verse 14. He says, amazingly, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. I don't believe it. You don't believe it. We just need to confess we don't believe it. If we did, Calhoun County would be changed. It's not that our Father is not willing to save the lost. It's that He has determined to save them through the prayers of His people. And until they pray, He will not save. You say, well, somebody else will do it. No, that's foolish talk. Show me in the Bible where it says He will do what He intends to do through the prayers of this church, through another church. We're not ever given that life raft, that beg out of duty and delight. We're never given that. And so what we're saying is we don't believe it's the work of God. We don't believe that He is in and working through us in the Spirit. We simply believe we're living good moral lives until He comes. hoping that other people will join us in our moral actions, in our good thoughts, in our good theology. Join me, and let's march in the band together of Reformed tradition. And yet we blaspheme that tradition because they believed, if they believed anything, that everything outside of prayer is a work which is damnable. Why? Because Jesus didn't say, go do good works, and I'll bless it. He said, ask me in my name, and I will do it. I made you a workmanship through grace and faith in the name of Jesus Christ so that you can do the work I've already done and prepared for you. Don't go do something and then ask God to bless it. Do what He's already blessed because it is in His name. What does it mean to pray in His name? It doesn't mean to say at the end of every prayer, in Jesus' name, though that may be good as a reminder. But it means not a formulaic truth, but a real truth. It means whatever I pray must be able to be placed under the authority of what He has taught me to be true about His character and His nature in His Word. And whatever I pray that way, He will do it.
without exceptions, without caveats. You know, I'm afraid we've gotten so fearful of charismania that we've denied the truth of Jesus Christ. And we've become rigor mortis in the pews. And we leave a message like this unchanged, not because He doesn't desire to change us through His Word, but because we're unsubmitted in prayer to Him and we just float through life. May it not be true. May it be true of this body and of this pastor from this day forward that when we come, we come in prayer, begging Him to do what only He can do through His Spirit in His name, knowing and trusting and believing that He will do it. Not timidly saying, I hope He does something. Knowing He will. Knowing He will. This doctrine of the Trinity is crucial because of that. If you don't hold a Trinitarian doctrine, I don't really know what you expect. But you cannot expect that He will do everything that He has promised. The unity of the Godhead unifies the church under the headship of Christ, which leads to greater works of God done by the church in the name and power of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father.